Welcome to The Data Optimist. I'm Melissa Stock, and today I speak with Peter Clutton-Brock from the International Centre for Artificial Intelligence, Energy and Climate. Peter is a climate expert and has worked with global companies to develop corporate climate strategy. He has also worked with the UK government to develop the Green Climate Fund and the UK Green Investment Bank. Thank you for speaking with me today, Peter. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Europe is trying to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Could you tell us about how artificial intelligence and data use could be used to help achieve this? AI and data science are never going to be a silver bullet to addressing climate change. Um, they're part of the solution and can help accelerate the transition to net zero. Um, but in and of themselves, they, they won't be, um, as I said, the silver bullet solution. Um, but that said, there are a series of opportunities where, where AI and data science will not only be accelerants to get to net zero, but may actually be critical components of that future uh, net zero uh, system that we're looking to create. Um, so some of those opportunities are in, for example, the energy sector, where we're looking to increase the amount of renewables coming into the system drastically over the next few decades. And there you'll need much greater, um, much more sophisticated software to manage the, the complexity that those um, that system is going to create. So you'll need to balance lots more variable generation. You could have lots more assets coming onto the grid in the form of distributed generation, storage assets, um, all those kinds of things. And you'll need much more intelligent software both to manage and optimize those systems. Um, the same applies in transport um, and land use and industry. And you, across all of the sectors that we care about when it comes to um, climate change, you're going to see opportunities to deploy AI and data science to, to really optimize the new low carbon systems that we want to create. One of the potential opportunities we have previously discussed is the development of a system-wide digital twin in the electricity sector. Um, for those listeners not familiar with this concept, a digital twin is a virtual model of a process that exists in the physical world. Peter, could you tell us how this would work in the context of energy? Sure. So when you look at the, the energy system and specifically look at the electricity system, you're looking at a system with a very low risk tolerance. So it's really, really important that you don't affect security of supply for, for people. And just politically, it's, it's a non-starter for people to, um, for politicians to think about any, any solution that does that. So then you've got to think about, OK, how can we innovate and get to a net zero electricity grid whilst maintaining very low risk on the system? And ultimately, the way you do that is by developing simulations or, or digital twins of the system that you're looking to change. And then that allows you to, to test ideas, to see what works, um, and try things out in a way that you can't do with the, the actual physical system. And I think what's, what's tricky about the, the electricity system when it comes to this is that it's obviously quite large and complicated. Um, you need to be able to include data on this digital twin that both models the um, the physics of the system, so the, the electrics of the system, so it works out where ele um, electrons will flow and, and why. But you also need to model the, the economics of the system, because what determines where electrons flow and what and why is often the, the price um, and how the um, different incentives on the price impact those, those flows. So it's quite a complex problem, um, but it, it would allow you to do some really, really exciting things and build um, AI and, and machine learning models on top of that digital twin that we, would allow you to optimize the delivery of, of low carbon electricity, which is a really exciting thing. And, and I think we're just starting to see um, uh, companies and governments think along the, these lines about how we can develop the digital architecture, if you like, um, that will allow us to get to net zero. 
So what would um, encourage or speed up the development of this sort of digital twin in the electricity sector? I think there are three things that I'd point to initially. So one is just understanding. One one is that governments need to really immerse themselves in the opportunity here and understand what the what the challenges are of deploying um, low carbon solutions on the grid, work out what the solutions are, and really understand the, the potential that digital twins offer um, to help us get there. Second is obviously funding. Governments need to put the, the their money where their mouths are and, and understand that if they want to see solutions like this at the moment, no existing organizations that operate on electricity grids have necessarily have the incentives to develop um, these kinds of models. Um, so the governments will need to step in and, and help financially. And thirdly, is really thinking about the incentives for the network companies to get involved in, in the development of these kinds of uh, models. Um, because within the electricity system, and there's, you know, these are some of the most heavily regulated um, markets in the world. We're, we're dealing with, you know, systems and markets where the incentives are set more in regulation and legislation than they are by, by the free market. Um, and as a result, you've got often uh, regulated monopolies in the form of um, uh, system operators and distribution network operators who control parts of the electricity grid, um, but without competition. And you need to really think about the incentives for those companies um, to get involved in these kinds of projects um, to ensure that there's both the right level of competition, but also incentives for cooperation across these companies to make sure that they put in the data to support the development of these digital twins. Would that be a case then of um, making changes to existing regulations in the energy sector to be able to do that? Is that is that something that you think would make a difference? I think I know it could come to that. And I think there's there's a lot of interest from the network companies in getting involved in these projects. I, th- I think there may need to be, there may well need to be um, interest and, and there may well need to be changes to, to regulations. Uh, and obviously, if you can do things without changing regulations, it's it's obviously somewhat easier because it can be a lengthy process to go through. But ultimately, you know, what defines what these companies do is is their financial incentive structures that, that are set through, largely through regulation at the moment. Um, so thinking really carefully about, yeah, exactly what their incentives are, um, how they, they can get benefits and rewards from innovating and, and from putting in data and, and ultimately making data open. And certainly in the UK, for example, there's been a long process for thinking through how we can open up uh, um, energy data mm. more widely. Um, and that's been a really positive process. And I think at the moment there's been a reluctance to open up data without really thinking about why. And and we're starting to see a change towards a a system where where data is presumed open on the energy system. So yes, there are going to be constraints to opening up data around privacy, around national security, um, but often data is not opened up for none of those reasons. Just because um, it's you know you need to clean it up. There's a little bit of work to do to get it out there, um, and uh, and actually you know the opportunities that arrive when you open up data, you can't necessarily predict exactly what they're going to be um, in 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 advance, but they it sort of opens the door to a, a wide suite of innovation that you can't do without it. One solution that is proposed has been the use of data trusts uh, to get around some of the, the issues with the use of data uh, in this way. Do you think that in, in the energy sector that um, if a data trust system was established that perhaps that could be one option that could encourage the sharing of data 
um, such that um, it could promote the use of, of data science, artificial intelligence and, and the systems that you describe? Very possibly. I think it's, you know, all of these different mechanisms are at an early stage and I think we'll, we'll see them develop and mature and, and people will work out whether or not they're right for a particular solution or not. I, and I'm not certainly an expert in data trusts, but I think there is an element where you do need some form of uh, intermediary that can hold data, that can ensure that it's used in the way that the, the data collector and data sharer is, is comfortable with. Um, but at the same time, that in some in some ways incentivizes that collection. And I think that, that you're going to see a, a lot of innovation around how data sharing works. Because ultimately, I think what we're looking to achieve is not always going to be a completely data open world where everything is just published, because a lot of data takes, you know, it, it, there's a commercial cost to creating data often. Um, so often what there may be, you know, there may be models where you're looking at situations where you'll see companies looking to sell their data um, online, but there will be, a, I guess, some form of data liquidity um, conversation that will need to be had. Um, so I think that that's going to play out over the next you know, over the next decade or so. And I think it's not not specific to the energy space. I think it, it happens obviously throughout a lot of the sectors that we care about. I think the, the energy space is specifically interesting because you're dealing with a very heavily regulated sector with, with monopolies. Um, and it may end up being the case that you have a different system where regulators just say to the network companies specifically, you have to just open up your data mm. wholesale um, or, or you know, everything that's not, um, that doesn't have specific privacy or, or um, national security limitations to it. So I think that there are different approaches that you might see. Um, data trusts are definitely one. Um, I think they won't probably be the only um, way that data is shared. I think you'll you'll probably see a, a range of solutions being developed. But I think the what's interesting is that alongside the digital innovation that you that we will need to see in, in all of these systems, I think we're equally, equally going to see an innovation innovation in business models to, to help achieve those. Um, and I think that's going to be a really interesting space to, to think about. You've said before that a, a big problem or, or, or a lot of time is spent in, in machine learning projects on cleaning and labeling data. Is there any move towards a standard being set for that in this space? That's a really good question. I, I think there are um, conversations going on around data standards. Um, but often what you need is actually the data to be collected in the right way. Um, and what you don't necessarily want is to, to generate data and then for, to apply the standards subsequently. What you want is for the data to be, to have standards around how the data is collected. So you need a data collection standard basically rather than, is there, is there some difficulty with that in the way that the data is collected for one purpose um, within each organisation and, and you'd have to sort of tweak that? I think I think often data is and a lot of these organizations and the, the state of data collection is often fairly basic and you know if you look at the for example energy network companies a lot of the data collection is still by hand I know whether or not it's it's people looking at um, going to visit assets on the ground and writing notes on a on an actual piece of paper about them um, that's often what the kind of data that is actually being collected at the moment and we don't have the, the sensors in place to digitally collect data uh, um, at the scale that's going to be needed in the future because we're going to need a much more data rich environment to collect and um, to be able to optimize these systems in the future. So I think, you know, as we develop those sensor, um, those, those networks of sensors throughout the system, I think there's a really important conversation to be had around making sure that those um, 
those sensors collect data in the right way so that they can be standardized um, across the whole of the system. And I think one of the things that's, I think, quite important in this space is for organizations to be able to come together, um, for companies to be able to come together and, and work out, yes, we are, we may be competitors in some realms, but when it comes to things like standards, there needs to be an element of cooperation um, to allow for interoperability around um, throughout the system. One other topic we discussed before was um, satellite data. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So, and I think what we're seeing now, I know there are both opportunities and challenges with, with satellite data. So I think we're seeing much greater um, availability of high resolution, uh, high fidelity satellite data coming through um, from new providers, which allows us to do things today that we simply couldn't do before. Um, and you know, using this data, there's a lot you can do to infer insight and information using a combination of satellite data and machine learning and data science. And I think that that opens the door to a whole range of different opportunities and solutions, which we're, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of. Um, and that, you know, that could happen throughout all of the sectors that we care about, whether or not it's, whether or not it's energy identifying particular assets on the ground, whether or not it's land use to identify um, areas that could be reforested or, or used to um, restore um, higher um, carbon land uses, um, or whether or not it's, it's helping understand the need to adapt to different climate environments and predicting um, food scarcity, food um, insecurity in different regions. So I think that you're going to see a, a huge opportunity to deploy a combination of um, satellite data and machine learning. I would say that I think at the moment there are some challenges with it. I think um, at the moment the the cost of getting high fidelity, high resolution satellite data is not trivial, um, and that at the moment is is one barrier to innovation and and to um, to to greater uh, use of satellite data. So you're seeing, you know, a lot of this use go to organ organizations that can afford it, whether or not it's organizations in the finance sector or the or the defense sector or in the intelligence sector, but um, companies and startups that are looking to innovate on it often have a bit of a hard time doing so. So I think, again, there, there may be opportunities to think quite laterally when it comes to opening up data from satellite, um, satellite providers. And I think that's going to be a really interesting space. And it may, and you may get to the stage where, for example, com uh, countries may see a benefit of opening up or, or paying for satellite data for their region um, at, a, at a national level to allow for that innovation to happen in the same way that we have, um, you know, some open data related to, to mapping software or, or others. Um, so I think, you know, satellite data is going to be hugely, hugely important and you can do a lot with it. Um, it's mostly, I think it's going, mostly going to be around insight and, and information provision, um, but there are going to be a lot of systems that will, will come to rely on it. And I think as it becomes higher fidelity, um, the options and opportunities will only increase. Peter, what is the uh, the centre doing at the moment and, and what are the plans for the year ahead? Sure. So the thinking behind the centre is really to look at all the challenges that make it harder than it should be to apply data science and AI to address climate change and look at how you can actually address some of those challenges at scale, um, at the scale required. So I think what some of the, you know, there are a whole range of challenges at the moment um, to applying data science and AI, specifically in the sectors that we care about when it comes to climate change that need to be addressed. And some of those are around data, and we've talked a bit about this, but um, this is around data, both data uh, quality, data access, data discovery, data standards. There are a whole range of challenges that make it hard for data scientists just entering this field to really start to get to work 
um, working in the climate space. So really thinking about data, really thinking about also some of the policy design that you need to, to tweak to allow it to, to be adopted more easily. Um, so a lot of, as I said, a lot of when you're looking at whether it's transport or energy or land use, often the incentive structures are set in, in legislation and regulation rather than by the market. So thinking about how those how those incentives can be set in the right way to support legislation is important. Um, one of the other barriers is around finance. So um, often VCs, venture capitalists and, and other early stage investors are really excited by the potential in this space, um, but a bit wary about investing because um, they see it as a, a bit of a challenge because you often got these regulated monopolies and it's a bit of a hard space to, to disrupt. Um, and then there are a whole series of other challenges, some of them softer, some of them basically due to knowledge siloization, where you've got, for example, people in the data science community who would love to get involved in climate change, but don't really know how to do so, and vice versa, people in the climate space would love to um, think about deploying AI and data science, but don't really know what kinds of problems it can help to, to address. So helping address, so thinking about those kind of problems. So effectively, what we're trying to do with the center is look at all of these challenges throughout the ecosystem um, and try and think about, okay, how can we address those um, in, in the best way possible? And at the moment, we're starting, we're starting in the UK and we're starting with the UK electricity system because each of these sectors, each of these systems has its own very unique dynamics. So we need to be somewhat focused in our approach. But we're doing a bit of a deep dive in the electricity sector, sector in the UK, really looking at what those challenges are, how we could address them at scale, um, and how we can take that forward. So at the moment, we're, we're working with the UK government to discuss whether or not there's the potential to fund something like the centre at uh, a large scale, to provide large scale government funding. So those conversations are, are ongoing. Um, we're also talking to a wide range of, of private sector companies who are interested in, in supporting this initiative and would love to get involved in some way, shape or form. So um, that's a, a process that's that's going on as well. Um, but we'd love to hear from anyone that's working in this space, that's thinking about applying data science to any particular sector that, that is relevant to climate change. Um, and if there's any way we can help, we would we would love to do so. Um, if you want to find out more about the centre, you can you can check us out online. We're, um, you can find us at www.icaiec.org. Um, or on Twitter by typing in ICAIEC um, and you should be able to find us that way. This is a final question I pose to all my guests. If you were able to identify one development in the next year that you would like to happen, what would it be? So I would, and I, we talked a bit about digital twins earlier, I, I would love to see, and I'm, I'm working in a UK context mostly at the moment, um, I would love to see the UK government put funding towards the development of a a large digital, digital twin project, um, bringing together a coalition of organizations and companies that are able to deliver that at scale. I think that would be incredibly exciting and incredibly important. Um, that obviously takes some funding. Um, so I think there's, you know, that, that will be a, my, my single big ask, I guess, of, of the UK government at the moment. Thank you for speaking with me today, Peter, and thank you to those listening. I hope you will tune in again for the next episode. Until then. <laughs>